0: If you'd like to turn over your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're continuing there today in our series. But I want to I want to begin by asking you about an experience. Experience has happened to me, different circumstances. Uh, it's experience I expect has happened to you. Have you been in the situation where... Perhaps it's a it's a disagreement, and you've been articulating your case, explaining why someone else is in the wrong, as you do, uh, and and they've responded not by engaging with what you're saying about them being wrong, but by attacking you, explaining why you're wrong in some other way. Uh, Sometimes it's sometimes it's kind of related to what you're discussing. Sometimes it's completely irrelevant. Uh, we see this uh, often in the media. The kind of smear tactics, in order to avoid the the line of reasoning, to avoid the uh, the argument of someone else, kind of get out of it, is actually. You're wrong. We can't trust you. You've got all these other problems going on. Now, particularly, we see it when there's people maybe who have actually been caught out doing the wrong thing. But they also they retaliate. Well, what about you? You did this. Maybe it's a kind of way of lessening the pain, lessening the guilt by well, if if I am if I am doing the wrong thing, well, you're doing the wrong thing too. There's a way of kind of bounces out a bit. I'm not wearing the guilt by myself. And maybe this is a tactic that you yourself not just have experienced but have engaged in. And more or less, I think we've, we've all done it in different ways. But the tactic of smearing an opponent, trying to undermine their authority, their standpoint by by questioning whether their character can be trusted, whether their thinking is consistent. This This is a tactic that goes, well, right back to the beginning, doesn't it? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to eat and God confronted them, what did Adam say? Oh, it was the woman that you put here with me. It was her fault. Actually, you you put her here. It's your fault. It's shift the blame. Find someone else who's got got a problem. It's God in his he didn't think it through. He put her here, and that's led to this downfall. This this he's he's culpable in this situation. Well, we laugh about it when we see Adam doing it but often we slip into that way of thinking foolishly and without knowing it. We do it to each other, and sometimes we even, like Adam, do it to God. Our mess can become a springboard for questioning God, His goodness, His wisdom, His power. as we continue reading in Romans today, we see Paul has been explaining very clearly why everyone has a problem of sin before God. Everyone has a problem of sin, and he's particularly in the last few paragraphs been explaining why even the Jews, who are God's special chosen people, they still had a problem of sin before God. Every human being is in the same situation. But now, having explained that, the natural question comes up to, well, if God's special chosen people, the Jews, even they in the in the grand weighing of things come out unrighteous in God's sight what what good is it to be a Jew, what advantage is there to being Jewish? Well, let's have a look at the first couple of verses that Paul writes here, Romans chapter three verse one. And Paul says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? What's his answer? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, if in the end, Jews are still sinful before God, just as every other person on earth is what benefit is there in being jewish well paul starts out like he's gonna start a long list firstly the jews have been given the very word of god and then at this point he doesn't continue on with his list uh he picks it up a little bit later on in chapter 9 verses 4 and 5 where he does explain some of the other privileges that the jews have but here he just he starts with the top one foremost of all the privileges the jews have is that god spoke To them. He revealed himself to them. He gave them the word, his word, the word through the prophets, the law, the word of the promises. What a great privilege. But even this privilege, the Word of God, that might not be as good as it sounds. If you're in the position of being caught out as a sinner and you're trying to get out of it, well, how good is God's Word? How trustworthy is God's Word? Because like Adam, Paul is... Responding to potential excuses people might make. That they might throw back to God in being caught out of sinners. And that's where he goes on. And we need to see as as we read this, that we cannot justify our sin by finding fault with God. Trying to bring God down a notch, doesn't solve our problem of sin at all. Okay, let's keep reading and see how these these arguments play out. And like uh, like many of our kind of thinking, as we're responding, it's sometimes it's a bit bit creative. It doesn't always hold up to the light of day. Uh, what goes on in your head and what we come sometimes think is a good argument when they, then when it kind of just gets spoken. In the real world, we see how hollow it is. It's a little bit like that, I think, with these arguments uh, that Paul is responding to. So he goes on in verse 3. Paul says, What? If some are unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Paul has been clearly proving that before God, we all have the problem of sin. We're all facing God's wrath. It's our natural deserts. And so some, it seems, are responding by trying to find excuses. Excuses that end up smearing God. Well, if I'm a sinner, then this means God's less than perfect. And there's two two main arguments here. The first one is, if God, so if we're sinners, and especially if the Jews are sinners, does that mean that God's unfaithful? Because he promised that the Jews would be his special covenant people. They'd be in special relationship with him. But if they've all turned out to be sinners, and if they haven't, Ended up being in good standing with God. Does this does it undermine God's purposes with, in choosing the Jews? Is is God changing His mind when He when He chose them to bless them and give them this privilege, and then now it's turned out to be nothing? Is God's faithfulness something that can be trusted? Well, the answer, as Paul responds, is certainly not, isn't it? Not at all. And I think if I was translating this for a kids' Bible, I would be writing, "No way, no way." He's Paul is emphatic. Um, the, in, the English feel like it should be in bold capitals. Not a chance. This argument doesn't hold up, and he explains why. Let God be true in every human being a liar. Well, if this if this is the contrast that humans are sinful, God is the standard by which we measure what's right and wrong. We need to remember when we try to navigate the world of morality, what's right, it's it ultimately comes back to him, doesn't it? It ultimately comes back to what's right in his sight. We often try and work out things as they seem to us uh, from a human, merely human standpoint, uh, but that's not how that's not how morality is. But then he goes on and he quotes from Psalm 51, which is a psalm that David wrote in response to being caught out in sin. It's the response to being caught out in his adultery with Bathsheba and being implicit in the murder of her husband. How does David respond? Does he try and bring God down and say, well, because I'm sinful, I'm the chosen king, I'm the one that you've put in this position. Actually, it's your fault for putting that woman there on the rooftop and putting me in this position. No, what's what's David's conclusion? He confesses his sin. He's open about it. He's humble and he resolves it. This is, this is the right way so that God may be proved right when he speaks, so that he might prevail when he judges. That's the, that's the right ordering of things. David humbly stands before God in response to his sin, owning it, not trying to make himself feel better by smearing someone else. God's faithfulness is something that can be trusted. And notice not just his faithfulness isn't just in positive ways in terms of blessing, but his faithfulness is also seen as he fulfills his promise to judge sinners. That's part of what David is is revealing here. God will prevail when he judges. He is consistent. He will follow through on his promise. And that's right. And it is consistent with what he has said. And we can't we can't find fault here with God because just because the Jews have, have sinned and they have not held up their part of the covenant relationship. It doesn't mean that God is not faithful in his part. And as we see, we'll continue reading Romans. Paul is pretty clear that God is not done with the Jews. Even though he, he has brought the Lord Jesus and he's made one way for all people to be in relationship with him. He's clear as we get to chapter 11 and we'll dig into it later that the, the Jewish people still have a special place in his concern. And their relationship to the non-Jews and the way that works out in his kingdom isn't, isn't over yet. There's more to come in God's faithfulness to them. But that's uh, that's getting ahead of ourselves. Here, Paul simply wants to undermine this argument. God is not being unfaithful just because, just because Israel has been unfaithful. The second argument he goes on to respond to here is not about God's faithfulness, but about his justice. And I don't know, it's. It's an interesting kind of argument, isn't it? Interesting way of thinking about things. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, then what right does God have to be angry with us? If our sinfulness just throws into contrast and highlights the holiness, the perfection of God, is it actually, in the grand scheme of things, is it actually a bad thing? Isn't it? Helping? Isn't it leading to God being glorified? To Him being understood? His perfection being better better appreciated? Don't we need the darkness of night to be able to see the starlight? We wouldn't appreciate stars, would we? If we just had daytime all the time? That's kind of the argument that's going on here. How could God judge us for doing something that ultimately ends up showing his glory? If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Is God unjust bringing wrath on us as sinners? Well, this is a form of the end justifies the means, isn't it? It's a form of, well, if it, if it actually ends up with a good result, then whatever steps to go there can be justified. But it doesn't work, does it? What does Paul say? He says, certainly not. No way. We know that God will judge the world. That is something that's been a clear part of his his communication, his promise. For God to be faithful to Israel, to be faithful to the world he's created, to be faithful to his word, he will judge. And he will judge justly as people deserve. The consequences don't make the action right. This is another smear of God's character, isn't it? Well, God would be unjust to punish us. doesn't work and Paul doesn't actually explain he doesn't dig into why this isn't the case he doesn't give an explanation he says let it not be so he says certainly not and he says what's going to be the result the people that argue such things their condemnation is just But he doesn't actually. He doesn't actually unpack why the ends justifying the means doesn't work out as a philosophy of ethics. And uh, there's it's a huge, it's a huge uh, topic to dig into. But one of the key things is what we've already mentioned in that if our morality is centered around God and His character at who he is as the standard of perfection of what is right and wrong, then it's not not directly related to what results, is it? It's related to who he is. And if our actions say our falsehood, if that is inconsistent with who God is, that's shown to be unrighteous. It's not right before him. A God himself always works consistently with his own character. God himself achieves the ends of being faithful to his promises, of bringing about his purposes in the world. And yet God himself never, never steps down in order to, he doesn't have to use dodgy means to get there. Doesn't have to do evil that good may result. Certainly he is able to use the evil that we do to bring about good. In his immense wisdom, but he he achieves his ends. all the good that he has planned, he achieves it by doing good, by doing what's right. And Paul wants. His readers to understand that these kind of cheap shots at God, as creative as they might be, they don't change the situation. They're not the knockdown argument, well, if 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 this kind of logic flows through, then it means that Paul's whole reasoning falls apart. Therefore, we can't all be sinners. That's not doesn't hold up. God's character, his faithfulness and his justice stand, even though we are sinners. Now, probably, I'm guessing, probably you're not making these same arguments about God in your own mind, but there are arguments that we make about God when we come to sin, aren't they? There are ways that we try and justify our actions, even sometimes at the cost of smearing God. Sometimes it's, well, God has allowed me to be in this situation of temptation. Therefore, what am I supposed to do? Like he he was in control over it. If he didn't want me to engage in this, he wouldn't have... Allowed me to be in the situation of temptation. It's a silly argument, isn't it? But it's kind of throwing it, is is God's wisdom out of whack? Is he somehow to blame for my choosing the sin? Not at all. Sometimes it's about the what we're experiencing in the world when we are finding it hard to endure the difficulty or pain of various moments when we are in suffering. Sometimes that provokes us to blame God and say, well, God's not being good. Sometimes we see the sin of others, don't we? And we project that onto God. This is an argument that's used commonly as people see the way that the church has failed over the years. The way people bearing the name of Christ have done terrible things. And people will argue, well, we see the sin that reflects on God. The church isn't acting as it should therefore the god that that church stands for isn't real isn't in control it's easy it's easy to try and solve our thinking problems by blaming god Like Paul, we need to remind our, like Paul is reminding his readers here, we need to remember that blaming God doesn't solve our sin problem. And blaming God actually doesn't hold up. Just like Adam's sin wasn't God's fault for giving him Eve. our sin isn't god's fault our sin doesn't show that god isn't good it doesn't show that he's not wise it doesn't show that he's not ultimately in control and bringing about his purposes god's character does not change. And where do we, where do we go, to see that most clearly? Well, we go to the cross, don't we? Because in response to our sin, does God kind of change his mind and say, "Well, actually, sin—it's not really that bad. Um, I'll, I'll just put up with it." No. Does God say in response to our sin, actually, because you're sinners, I've decided not to love you. I'll cast you off. No. What does God do? In His goodness, in His love and His wisdom, And his justice, he sends his own son. Take human form to live and ultimately to suffer and die as a criminal. Bearing bearing the punishment that sinners deserve. Bringing blessing to people. God... God holds his goodness and his justice with his wisdom. It all ties together in the Lord Jesus. Here we see his promises to Abraham and to the Jewish people come to fruition, don't we? Abraham, who was going to have a great family, and through him, God was going to bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. Ultimately, it comes to fruition in the Lord Jesus. One of Abraham's family, who in dying for us, for our sin, brings blessing. God is faithful to his promises. In dying for sin, God still punishes. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, oh, forget about it. His justice is upheld. Sin, Our sin can't derail God's plan. It can't detract from the goodness of his character. As we see our sin more clearly, we ought not try to find ways to to project that onto God. But we ought to be reminded of the opposite, that God stands apart and different from our sinfulness. We ought to turn our eyes again to the Lord Jesus who lived and was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin and yet died to save us. Friends, don't let your sin be an opportunity to smear God. Let it be an opportunity to see His character more clearly and rejoice in Him all the more. Let me pray. Great God, we thank You for Your Word to us in in Romans 3 for Paul exposing these weak, human, even slanderous arguments. And please help us not to fall into that trap. Help us not to engage in the blasphemy of projecting our sin onto you. And please help us in humility to admit our sin and turn with faith and hope to the solution that you have provided. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.